0: Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Essaval helps your in house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out e s e v e l dot com, and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Michael. Really excited to have you on the show. Met you at INSEAD at the Venture Capital Conference, and I thought there was a tremendous amount of truth in what you were saying about what needs to change. And more importantly, you're actually doing something about it.
1: I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Jeremy. My name is Michael Kosick. I am the founder of Loyal BC. But before that, I consider myself a lifelong entrepreneur, an active angel investor, and father to two great children.
0: Amazing. So how did you get into investing and tech?
1: With the lifelong entrepreneur kind of path that I talked about, this is in many ways archetypical. So it's paper route selling mini concession store in my locker in junior high school, developing applications and installing networks in high school, doing people's tax returns. And then John did some industrial engineering, and that was really about adding technology to businesses to create some new value and opportunity. Then went and got a degree from and my MBA there, and joined a startup shortly after that. So there's always been tech there and in the background, being trained as an engineer first, and a love of, of business and finance and venture, I guess.
0: I think it's a big transition right i mean you were an operator and builder and then you decided to do venture capital investing so what was that motivation for you to start exploring and investing
1: first it was about fixing things and then it was about building things and then uh, several startups later on in my life i'd known what it takes to actually build up a business and get it from nothing to something and profitable and successful and thought that I could be involved in several businesses, not just the one that I was running myself. And I could actually take part in, live vicariously through, and maybe create more value by working with more entrepreneurs, and yet put myself in a position where it's not just about everything coming down to me as the founder, because that's something that isn't necessarily sustainable your whole entire life. So put differently, I don't want to ever retire. I've got the best job, I think, in the world now, but it took me a while to figure that out and get in a position where I could actually make a living out of that job. And what
0: did you learn about a transition from being a builder and operator to doing a first set of
1: investments? Well, a lot of things. You hear a lot of people saying kind of embrace failure. I mean, I'm very much a, let's try to chase a success. Don't want to embrace failure, but I certainly want to learn from it. Uh, try not to repeat it, build up some muscle memory and share those lessons when they're relevant. But at the same time, I think it was really important for me to do this in a way and do it with someone where we would be humble about our own experiences because I didn't appreciate people who weren't get, when they were giving me advice when I was an entrepreneur. And uh, there is w- wisdom is a wonderful thing. Uh, but often when you're a founder, you're the one who's out there taking the real risks and often having the insight and foresight that others don't or just the perseverance to push through it.
0: So what's interesting is that as you built this, you built Loyal VC, right? Which is VC Fund. And what's interesting is that you approached it in a very different way. You built a very different fund. But before we talk about the fund itself, like, how did you discover that you didn't want to build it the normal, conventional way, right? Describe that.
1: So I would say it was 20% ignorance in the sense that I didn't know how to do it differently or how you were supposed to do it. And 80%, it was how I believed you should do it or one should do it. So when I was working with my partner Kamal on the fund, it was interesting because we got together and we were talking about problems and opportunities in early stage investing, both from the perspective of the angel investor and the entrepreneur. And there was probably about an 80% overlap in some of the problems or opportunities we'd identified. But what was amazing, there was a 90% overlap on what we thought we should do it or how we thought we should do it differently. So those things really led us to build a fund structured in a way that we would want to take money from it as entrepreneurs, and we would want to invest in it as angel investors.
0: So what's wrong with venture capital? I mean, because you're yeah, implying something, right? Which is like, oh, I didn't know how to do it the conventional way, but I built it in a totally my way. Yeah. And then kind of like skipping something here, right? It's like, so what's the current way?
1: So a, a few things. I think ego is a big issue in venture capital, and we don't believe that you can necessarily predict the future. For example, we do psychological testing of our entrepreneurs before we allow them into the program, and. It's not that the attributes that we test on are predictors of success. It's the opposite. We found that that they're highly covariant with entrepreneurial failure. So let me give you a few examples of that. So if you are too agreeable, then you're not necessarily going to make a good entrepreneur. If you don't have fluid intelligence, or that's the ability to realize that the pieces on the chessboard have changed, the environment around you has changed, that you have a need to pivot from your own idea. You may have been in an industry for 10, 15 years, had a great insight. You're driving your startup towards taking advantage of that opportunity. If the landscape does change and you're still stuck in that mindset of two years ago, when you left and launched this great adventure, then you're going to steer the whole company and also all the staff and all of the human and financial capital down the wrong path. If you're a sociopath, this test will flag you. Now, sociopaths might be able to pitch very well. They might be able to inspire people to give them that first check but you're not going to be able to coalesce a team around you long-term and and really create value. And that's an example of one of the things that we believe that it shouldn't be about just the ego and me knowing how to predict entrepreneurial success. We don't have a crystal ball, so we really wanted to build a process-oriented VC that allowed winners to emerge and then rewarded them based on their performance, not their intent or their pedigree or their background or the last great thing they did. So, that was important to us. So, you just said that there's a bunch of factors, for example, like fluid
0: intelligence, not yeah. being too agreeable, not being a social path. So, how do you test for that or how do you screen for that? Because before we talk about process, yeah. but how so do you actually screen for it? Yeah.
1: yeah. 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 So, we source from three places at Loyal we source from INSEAD, we source from the Founders Institute, and we source from our own LPs. On the third one, the logic there is if you trust us enough with your money, we should trust you enough with your opinion. We should invest in. We'll give them a chance to compete with everybody else. Now, the Founder Institute has a entrepreneurial DNA test or assessment. So that's the one we currently use. All of the founders have already taken that test. When we source from INSEAD, we actually make the INSEAD founders go and do that test. And interestingly enough, we have a company in our portfolio called SquarePeg Hires. They've made it actually to the scale stage. Claire McTaggart is the CEO there. She's based out of New York. And they do this attributes-based hiring and assessment. We've used it. Very small sample size to hire the amazing staff and people we have currently at Loyal, which is wonderful. And some of our startups themselves have used her product. But what I'm getting at is there is science there. Claire's uh, company takes that science maybe a step further than the Founder Institute test and that Entrepreneurial DNA test does. But that test is there. It's free. Go check it out, fi.co, and take the Entrepreneurial DNA test and you can see the results. If you like assessments like I do, I'm always interested in looking at data. I don't necessarily have to agree with it. Remember that agreeableness thing? Yeah. That type of thing fascinates me.
0: Mm. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? Because one level you are saying, I don't want to measure people by their pedigree and all these other things, the last great thing they did. And I'm willing to screen people Mm -hmm. based on their personality traits and so forth. So there are different criteria. Mm -hmm. I actually was reading a paper recently that said schools do predict for some level of excess return in terms of, because they're highly correlated with other things, right? Like flow intelligence and all these other things, but yes. also because some schools are really correlated with great networks, right? Fundraising networks and capital is something that is right. That is That's right. a tough skill to master, let alone something to snowball and push it forward, right? In terms of network and alumni network. Yes. So what does that mean? I mean, I think that you know, all of us are like, we yeah. want the best people, but the best people tend to come from yes. these pegs, right?
1: Yeah. So that's why I I like our two sources. Founder Institute is a lot more inclusive than INSEAD. And by that, we draw from the top performers in each of the cities. And they have 150 different cities that they run this in. To be a top performer, you need to enter the program. To enter the program, you need not much. I think it's anywhere between $500 and $1,500 tuition. It's not an expensive type of program. So that makes it a lot more accessible to different socioeconomic levels. While INSEAD, It's a top business school, top global business school. It's expensive to go there. Yes, some people are there on scholarship, but most people who graduate from INSEAD have at least one rich uncle or aunt that can help them launch that business. They're both global networks. They're both powerful networks. We're not saying that INSEAD and Founder Institute are better than Y Combinator and MIT. If somebody came to us, especially so early on in our networks from MIT, we'd have to ask ourselves why couldn't they get funding from their own network? So there's an adverse selection problem there. So we very much do rely on the power of these networks, the trust associated with these networks. And it's enough. We add six new companies per month, three from each of the networks, three from NCED, three from FI. And we've been doing that for years globally. So we're up to almost 300 companies. We'll hit 300 companies in March if the figures keep going as we're going. And NCED's one of the top unicorn. It's a top non-U.S. school for unicorn founders. So it is a good place to fish. Venture Capital VC is definitely about access and access to those networks is an important correlator of success. There's enough entrepreneurs for us to still, and world-class entrepreneurs, we believe that we still need to discern from within that population and take bets or not take bets on some of them. So we do reject entrepreneurs.
0: And what's interesting is that you're obviously making these additions all the way up to three hundred companies, and talk about the process, right? Which is that you often start with yes. that small check, and after that you double down, and you double Always. down after that. But doesn't every VC do that? Sequoia or how right. many couple VCs do that? But what's interesting, obviously, is that you're starting like at about what ten thousand
1: dollars, very small. Ten K. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That ten K. There's three different analogies I like to use for that ten K. If you're a poker player, it's an ante. If you're a mathematician, it's an option on a time series of asymmetrical inside information. And if you're a marketer, it's a marketing expense. Choose the analogy that most resonates with you. But the simple fact, this is the paid due diligence stage, okay? So the next check is the check where we discern and we do two and a half of these 200k checks per month. and. With about 100 companies ready for and buying for those checks, that means about 2%, the top 2% of the companies we select for the 200K checks the following month. So we've chosen the check size very specifically to avoid some decision making biases. And again, it comes back to that ego point I made earlier. You're not going to spend 200K to save a 10K investment, to be right about that. Our next stage is a million dollar check. You shouldn't spend a million dollars to defend a $200,000 investment that you've made, right? So while many VC models, they reserve half the capital for follow-ons, right? This is a a 5X. Our next check is 3 million. So if you look at it that way, what you're doing is you're putting in a, a structural barrier so that you don't fall into that throw good money after bad. And we're very honest and open with our entrepreneurs. We never say we will be that VC that is there. To support you throughout the entire journey with funding when you need it, we say, we are the VC that is there that will support and issue the checks to the entrepreneurs who are performing the best in our portfolio. So that very competitive nature, and it, it's systematic and it's disciplined, right? 40% from every previous stage moves on to the next stage. But one of the things that when we were setting up our fund is we want to be patient capital. We've both been entrepreneurs. We know what a meandering path this is. As data-driven as we are, if you're not within 89% of your KPIs within 8.3 months, then we're done with you. It's not like that at all. You are constantly competing with all of the other companies in the loyal stage that you're in. We've had a a company that we fund, if you look at the kind of distribution of, of when we write our next checks, the median is about 10 to 11 months in between checks. We've written some of those follow-on checks in as little as three months and as much as three and a half years. Now, that three and a half year entrepreneur, just to pick one of the upward outliers, she was a Silicon Valley company that she, good leader, good business, but her valuation was at Silicon Valley levels. And from our perspective, compared to the global choice that we had for investments, she had to grow into her valuation and she did. She got the revenue, she built the business and did the day that we felt that she was appropriately Priced, we made her the offer. That kind of process that we use is very important to us.
0: And one of the things that I get, of course, is that what you want to do is you want to double down on the winners, right? That's what every VC says, right? And then I think what's interesting, of course, about this approach is that I think first of all, you're starting with a very small check, right? All the way at 10K. That's like pretty much the pre-seed, right? The angel check.
1: I like to say... For 15% maybe of our portfolio, that that 10K is life-giving. For where they are, for where they're operating in, it can pay for for some developers, it can pay for survival, it gets credibility, it helps them gather other funding to get started. For the other 85%, it's an expensive lunch in San Francisco. I mean, it doesn't move the needle. And when we went back and we asked our entrepreneurs, well, why did you take this money from Loyal, this 10K check? Half of those, of the 85%, Half of them say, We like the fact that you're there with successively deeper checks, which some of my angels can't do. And all I have to do is beat two other entrepreneurs in your portfolio and I get your money. And most entrepreneurs I know think they can beat two other people in the room. If you and I and our third buddy were sitting around having a beer and we would each say, Jeremy, I, I love what you're doing my business is better. If I didn't think that, I would be like, Jeremy, I'd like to join your business. That's an interesting kind of dynamic and mentality with entrepreneurs themselves. The other half say, I'm not worried about money. I'm not interested in money. Money's not really the issue for me. And fundraising is an issue. We want access to your network. So we have over 700 advisors located all around the world. And the advisor piece of our program was also really important for me. To design and design properly. So, I had, in addition to being an angel investor and an entrepreneur several times, I've also been an advisor and advised many and multiple companies, startups, before I even launched the fund, and worked with enough accelerators and incubators where they kind of take advantage in many ways of a lot of advisors who are in that pay it forward mode. They create a lot of value for the entrepreneurs, which is captured by the incubators and the accelerators and not necessarily shared with the advisors. We share 20% of our carry with the advisors and we do that on a merit basis. So only the advisors who've worked for that particular entrepreneur. And let's say you're a portfolio company, I'll ask you when you exit, I'll say, Jeremy, of all of the loyal advisors you've worked with, rate them on a relative value creation basis. And you might say, I only worked with Jennifer maybe only talked to her three times in the eight years before my exit but her advice or her connections or her timing whatever it was created 10 times more value than mary and mary was amazing she rolled up her sleeve she put in 20 hours in our world jennifer gets 10 times what mary gets because you believe and you tell us that's where the value is created so again very important part of the model that i'm very proud of
0: so what's interesting of course is that when you talk about that advisor network are you looking at it from like a fund carry perspective or do they get like deal by deal? Like only the companies help. It's,
1: it's deal by deal. We don't like freeloaders. We never have, and that merit is really important. Looks, I am a, a Canadian white male engineer with an NCI degree. I've received very little discrimination in my life. Where I have received discrimination is ageism. Right. So I was typically the youngest person in the room, doing a lot of the work, while the old and bald guys were getting all of the comp. It was one of the reasons why. I, I was driven to get a big brand name a degree so that I could justify higher rates. I mean, that's how I thought about when I was young, but life's obviously a lot more about a lot more things than that. So it was always very important for me to make sure that people, regardless of their level of experience or gender or race or whatever, but rather their merit, so their value, what they contributed was recognized and rewarded. So as much as possible, we've designed a system we believe that does that.
0: And what's interesting, of course, is that all this is supposed to create this early double down winners, early checks, like you said, to either yep. be get in, inside information or a way to get in, asymmetric yep. information or to be a marketing expense. And all of that is supposed to deliver in better returns, right? Every VC yes. fund basically... They have a spiel, they have that 20-minute explanation. So how does that translate to returns and how should we think about performance?
1: So my favorite, and I know this isn't a show you slides, otherwise I'd, I would have already showed you like four slides. It's not that kind of a podcast, which is totally fine. But what I would consider our money slide, our, our winning slide, the, if I could only show you one slide it's two lines and one shows the performance of the 10k checks. So this is closest to spray and pray, as you may have heard at the industry term, because it's broad diversification. We've got 300 now of these 10k checks and in 54 countries, they're returning about 10%. And the interesting thing is the follow on all the checks we're writing are returning three times that. So to me, that is showing that our follow-on decision-making is creating value. Now, the whole C might go up and down in terms of what returns in the asset class are. But if I look at that, that, that baseline, that spray-and-pray approach of a venture-grade of portfolio investments, then our performance is we continue to push that performance with our processes, with our ability to buy and support and pick those winners, if you will, and invest more in them, then that will continue to drive these excess returns. So the interesting thing about fund, our fund is it is open-ended. We price every quarter. So you can cash out. You can realize these returns with us, which you can't necessarily do in, in most funds because most funds are closed.
0: And. So what you're saying is that you have a blended set of performance, right? So your first tranche, you're not outperforming most index VCs. No, no. Spray and spray.
1: No, definitely Interesting. not. Interesting. Definitely not. Yeah. But but that only represents, because of the nature of how we wrote these check sizes and the increments, is that only represents 10% of the deployed count. So I get it. Less.
0: Because what you're saying is, uh, this is a learning point for me. I'm learning something here. What you're saying is, yeah. even though it's... Industry returns, that's okay, because it's, that's like the small blind, right?
1: That's like the small. That, yeah. That's it. That's it. Or if you think about it, the third analogy was the marketing expense. It's just to have us known out there to get into these, these deals globally. And the interesting thing is because we're so early on in the process, we ne- we'll never be the biggest fund in the world. This is a $500 million fund when it's at steady state, right? Making $50 million of investments a year with six new companies in the coming month, and then six companies either dying or exiting. In steady state, that's what it looks like. How should we think about performance, right? Because obviously, I think everybody's looking
0: for the largest top line return, right? How do you think about ratios of performance? How do we benchmark performance yes. across VCs and how does your approach
1: differ? It's funny to talk about lower risk and venture capital in the same sentence. We believe that our approach really drives that. You may have heard that diversification is the only free lunch in investing. You may have heard that expression. So we're applying that portfolio theory directly into this asset class. We put that very question out to our advisors. Our advisors, you know, 90% of the time, well, actually 99% of the time, they're advising our portfolio companies, but we take advice from them as well. So we put a question out to them, how can we measure and communicate our own performance and risk performance? They said, Take a look at something called the Sortino ratio. And the Sortino ratio is like the Sharp ratio, but it doesn't punish upward volatility. So we have a fantastic Sortino ratio of what's north of four. Two is very good. I think that Berkshire Hathaway is at like 0.8. We've closed now 20 quarters. So we raise every quarter. And only three of the 20 quarters since the inception of our fund have been down rounds, and they've been down a very small amount. So This diversification and our processes are creating this remarkable return profile. Now, if you look at the underlying venture capital math, 68% of portfolio companies will fail, 30, 31% will return 1 to 10x, making up for the first batch, leaving you with approximately 2% of the portfolio companies really driving the big returns. A typical VC will invest in 15 to 20 of those. If you just do a Monte Carlo simulation, if you do a mathematical brute force, a bunch of rolling the dies, if you will, you're going to get a wide distribution of returns. We're loyal and this nature of our fund, the structure of our fund, we cannot and will not, it's mathematically not possible for us to be in the top decile of funds. However, when we say we're in the top quartile and the process is driving it, it's based on a lot of data. So we invite anybody who's really interested in making investments to come and we're an open book from that perspective. They can look at the investments that we've made. They can look, see them over time when what the performance is. So we're very proud of that. We're not the fund that you're going to brag about that you got the 100 banger from because that 100 banger is going to be shared with 200 other investors and currently 300 other investments. So you're more likely to be in a grab when you're with Loyal. But you're not necessarily going to obviously make the type of direct returns that you would if you were gambling and picking these by yourself. We do a talk, Secrets of Angel Investing, where we talk about different options you have available to you as an angel. Because Fund of Funds is a great way to get a similar fund return profile, but you're going to be paying management fees twice there. So with Loyal, you get it in one fund.
0: So you said something interesting, right? Which is we... Have the Sotina ratio and we're going oh. to deliver that consistent return, but we're not going to be the top decile of returns. And I'm like, you lost me there. We can't. So I think you lost me there because I'm like, I know. Like, why would I want to be in a fund that's not in the top decile of returns?
1: Because it's the lower risk, really. So the lower risk, it's the more reliability, we believe, the more reliability of the returns compared to what you're going to get other asset classes, certainly. But even if you took an approach, properly diversified approach, and you invested in enough funds so that your money was spread out over 200 companies, you're going to get, we believe, better returns through using Loyal as that vehicle. So yes, if you do your digging on actual fund returns, funds tend to only brag about the funds that they've done well in. The fund, a subsequent fund, there's not massive amounts of correlation between the success across funds, right? So just because you managed to get lucky in a previous fund doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get lucky in a future fund when you're only making 15 bets. So we're telling you to bet on the math. Let me put it to you differently. Uh, Using that gambling analogy, wouldn't you rather bet on the house? Right? Wouldn't you rather run the casino than be the person sitting at the table? Right? So boo, flies. (laughs) I mean, there's so many VCs, right? Are you saying like all the VC
0: funds are all like fundamentally if they're doing 20 investments like is this doesn't work or they don't have a way no
1: no 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 I, I think there are brilliant and excellent funds out there that pursue specific theses and when they get it right it's fantastic we diversify across not only sector but vintage you just can't get that out of other funds so there will be great years to be in I don't. Let's just pick blockchain. There'll be great years to be in, in blockchain or Web3 funds, and there'll be great years to absolutely be away from those funds. And the criteria for the decision-making, sometimes the skill of the people who run their funds is very high. They're, they're good, generally, people to bet on, but there are sectoral moves. There are timing moves that you can't get around. In fact, we step aside whenever we can when there is a VC that we work with that wants to come in and lead around that we had started the ball rolling on with our founders. We're like, yeah, so we don't need to lead this as long as we get the same terms as the other investors. They're better known in this specific career currency. We're happy to work with those funds and we're glad that they're there it's just not our approach and it's not what we sell and how we position to our investors. I hope I didn't come across like everyone else is doing it horribly and you should never invest in another VC fund.
0: I mean, what's interesting is that this is kind of like an you know, iron sharpens iron here, right? So you're saying that yeah, you're saying that there are ways for a fund that's not of your approach to succeed. And that's if they are clear about the pieces oh, yeah. or the themes that makes sense, whether that's geography or whether that's a thesis on a vertical approach. And then, of course, the other one that you mentioned was that there are actually Individual outperformers, right? Which is there are partners who are better than others. And lastly, you just talk about being lucky. Are those the three major strategies within this large, I would say, crowd of VCs? Those are the three strategies that you think outperform over the long run.
1: So look, I don't underestimate the value of luck and timing, but there's certain things you can do to engineer some of that luck. I think that the judgment that comes with judging people and entrepreneurial teams, there are people who are good at that. And that's a great skill. So that helps when you're deciding where to concentrate, where to follow in. And I think that there are people who are not good at that and making those types of decisions and those people will be outperformed by the other people that have those skills. So there are funds and fund managers that put that front and center and have a track record. And I think that if the decisions they made really drove that value in the past, then then they are definitely to be respected for that and they deserve investment. What We wanted to build a fund with Loyal where those things were all bonuses, but we didn't necessarily have to have those superpowers, yeah. if you will.
0: Wow, oh, so curious because actually, if you see enough companies, then actually you get to see which funds actually have superpowers versus their rhetoric. Any trends that you noticed, sure. I guess, because you know, you're following, you're adjacent to all these other funds who are leading, they're taking the board seat, they are leading the capital, and you're observing, you're watching. Any patterns or observations that you've seen over time? You
1: know what? I, I think please have me back on this podcast in eight years. The reason I say that is because many of our top companies are still in that kind of series A bucket. Mm -hmm. So as more time goes by, we will, because we start so early and we're there consistently through, we'll have a lot more exposure and insight into seeing some of these operators and decision makers. I don't think I have enough data. That's the short answer for you. I don't think I have enough data for that. You
0: know what? I love
1: it. I'm sorry. I, I,
0: I, no, I love that so much. I mean, you just said, I don't have enough data for the answer. I just wish more people said that all the time. Because it's so true, yeah. right? It's not yes, and it's not no. I just don't have enough data yeah. to support a good answer. I can say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like it so much.
1: It's funny when we do this half as a joke, but it's half as a joke, but you're always making the same joke. We tell our portfolio founders when we're onboarding them, we say 70% of the time, Everything that we tell you, you should just do without question. And then we say, but the problem is we can't tell you which 70%. So put differently, we'll try to have an opinion that's based on some wisdom and experience that's not gospel. Get enough opinion so that you have some contradicting advice. Make the decision for yourself. Ultimately, we're supporting them and often learning from them. We try to be humble. And when we're on calls, I'm like, okay, well, I, I must know if we have 700 advisors in our network, There's got to be somebody in the network that can answer this entrepreneur's question or help them with that problem much better than I can. I'm often saying, that's a great question. Let's go ask somebody else. (laughs) Right.
0: And what's interesting, of course, is that you're choosing to be a follow VC, right? But you're making these decisions independently of the cycle. So, how, I guess, from a founder perspective, as a founder and you yourself have been, right? You always like to yourself, like, okay. I need money now, let's just say, or build this yes. thing. Okay, I got it, right? Because yeah. I have the ideas. And then once you get the money, you a bunch of investors sitting around. And then you're like, okay, this one's good for them. And I trust and respect this person. This other person brought the money, but maybe we don't have a relationship. So where does loyalty sure. sit in the mind space of a founder? Because I think the one thing you mentioned earlier about spray and pray slash index funds is like, they're kind of not there, right? I am just like absent, yeah. right? Because which makes sense. I mean, they're taking care yeah. of, in your case, for example, 300. Startups, right? And then the team is small and focused and so forth. So how would you think about that?
1: So we had a great onboarding call with a company today. One of the things the founder said is she said, we didn't end up taking money from that program we were in because we didn't feel that enough of them had really in-depth knowledge about our industry. There's different ways of creating value. As much as we've had really great returns for our investors, my North Star metric, our North Star metric, is that 98% of our portfolio companies have accepted our follow on offers when we've made them. And when Kamal and I were doing the mathematical model for this fund, we said, okay, if 50% of the time our money is accepted by the founders, this thing's going to work. And we're at 98%. And the one that got away, she said to us, I'm not raising right now, right, guys? I'm not raising right now. Can you guys wait six months? Because that was the month that she came to the top of our allocation process. And we said to her, we don't know what the world's going to look like in six months, so we can't promise you that. But we counted that as a loss, right? The good thing about us is that we do have those successive abilities to write more checks. Some of the advice that we give is often make sure that you have a shareholder agreement earlier on that is written in such a way that someone with a board seat that might have been a big check at the beginning is forced to either re-up or kind of create value for the organization. And you can do that with a variety of techniques, but mostly set a reasonable ownership percentage for them to be granted a board seat. We. Try to earn the respect from the entrepreneurs by creating that value. We're in touch with the founders on a monthly basis. It's a check-in and we spend some time talking about their kind of KPIs and performance. We try to prepare ahead of time so that we're utilizing their time in a respectful way. And we always end every session with entrepreneurs, what's the biggest way we can help over the next month. If they have asks and they have asks on a regular basis and we help them on a regular basis, then they're going to keep calling us and or taking our calls. So it's about that. And I think you can poll our entrepreneurs and I believe that's what you'll hear. So I'm happy. It's a big thing to live up to. And we have to be vigilant that we're continuing to create value, not that we earn that 98%. So like I said, it's my North Star. So we got to do a lot to keep it where it is. It's going to be a Wait,
0: you blew my mind a little bit here. You just said something that you offered money to somebody And that person wasn't even raising at all. So what does that mean, right? So okay, so I'm starting to get a sense here. So you first you put in a small check of like ten thousand dollars, right? And then you're doing Mm -hmm. a follow up check. So are you saying that because of the way you're looking at it, the way that you're thinking about the process, you're going to be like, okay, you're gonna put capital without a lead, without someone
1: else. That's right. Well, we're happy to lead because look, we have this relationship with the entrepreneur. We're seeing their data on a monthly basis. We think we see the inflection points before they happen so you're sharing your data with us we're talking about your performance and because we're an open-ended fund we have to value the portfolio companies every quarter so we are making decisions about what we think is the fair market value for all of these companies regardless of whether or not there's been a transaction if there's been a transaction that has the most weight obviously but we are then making decisions and estimates of what that company's worth is so If your value continues in that kind of upward trajectory and your valuation hasn't moved in a while, that's an opportunity for us to say, hey, Jeremy, why don't you take some money from us now, maybe delay a round or collect from your other investors at the same terms. But fundraising is an absolute waste of money. It's a necessary evil. It's a distraction. It doesn't actually create real value. Talking about building a business isn't building a business. I had a very a great mentor, and he said something very simple that stuck in my mind for, I guess, over, this was over 30 years ago. But he said, if you're not building something or selling something, you're wasting somebody's money. And it was so simple and so powerful that it really stuck with me. We're in that position. If I can have that honest conversation with you saying, we would love to put money in you. We think that it's great. And look, if we'll be happy because we got our money in earlier. We'll all be collectively happy if you delay that. Maybe we all dilute a little bit less later. Maybe you build up your value more. That's investing lockstep with you and thinking like a founder, right? Amazing. And as you look forward to the future,
0: what do you think is going to be the risks to this approach that you're doing? So you know, all of this is up with low downside risk. I mean, everybody likes that, right? So what do you think are the break points in the model? I think you mentioned one thing just now, which I recall is, you said everything's a series A investment so far. So people evaluations obviously show that performance. So more time will let us prove or kind of like show things have changed. But what are the factors you think are key things to watch out for? Yeah.
1: We believe based on kind of the initial mathematical model that we should be continuing to see these gains across different stages. I definitely do now have the data on our 200k investments to say that it's absolutely clear that we're creating value here and we're starting to get to that level on the 1 million we haven't done any of the 3 million dollar investment levels yet we're raising 70 million dollars to bring our fund up to 100 million it's at just over 30 million now and again this is like building a winery right there's only a certain amount of hectare and it's building up risk could theoretically be, is that the returns of the later stages are significantly lower than the returns of the earlier stages. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, again, it's not what the historical data would lead you to believe, but the future ain't what it used to be. Right? So again, when we have the data, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, everything went according to plan. But right now the process seems to be driving these returns the diversification continues across these stages we can respond and flex the model in the future if we find that there is an issue with it but right now it is looking like it is the right way to do things
0: that's a really interesting approach which is saying that you've de-risked it at the early stages of this approach but in the later rounds that value differential order Insider information that you get may not be as privileged, right? Or as asymmetric. You
1: know? Yeah, but at the same time, think about it. Like we were probably like, think as at the entrepreneur now, we were probably the first VC to write you a check. We may have led one or two of your early rounds. Like if we've treated you well, we've been there from the start, right? The thought that we would lose that trusted position with the entrepreneur, that would keep me up at night. That would mean that we're not doing what we should be doing to earn that place. Now we're not saying treat us better than other investors. But we're just saying we listen and we want to support you, and we want to share the wins, and especially share the wins with the companies in our portfolio that are doing the best. Amazing, right? And the last thing is one thing you've done is, and which is very
0: rare, is that you decided to be an open fund. That's actually a very big difference. I mean, again, it goes back to things like you're actually doing things very differently, right? So most funds have that 10-year yeah. time period. You're just deciding to be similar to Sequoia. So what's the reasoning here? Uh, oh,
1: wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I've been humble this whole time, but I actually have to say we did it four years before Sequoia. <laughs> okay, all right. So no, look, look, there's actually been, there's been about 200 open-ended funds since the Dawn of Venture when we look through the numbers. Part of this comes back to how we opened up this podcast, which is, We built the fund that we would want to invest in as angels. Kamal and I, as angels and entrepreneurs, we were like, what? Lock away our money for 10 years? That's an eternity, right? That's a long time to lock away money that you could deploy elsewhere. Open ended aspect has actually made it quite difficult. They say that raising money for a fund is 10 times harder than raising money for a startup. Raising money for an open ended fund. probably 20. I don't know because I don't have the experience, but I'm going to make up that number. I think it's probably twice as hard because it's non-standard and innovation in a core financial model is not interesting. It might be appreciated by some, but it's not necessarily rewarded. And where the biggest obstacle is when there are gatekeepers, it's different. If I'm talking to you and as the LP, if I get to you and which is all I ask for, just let me get in front of the decision maker then I have a pretty good chance of convincing you that you should invest your money with us. If I'm talking to a gatekeeper, one of your staff, then they've got a checklist that they're going through. And checklists are good. I'm an industrial engineer by degree. Checklists are great. But every non-standard thing that they have on that list is something else that they're going to have to explain to the person making the decision. So I love it. It's the right thing to do. It's going to be about eight years. And I'm so glad that Sequoia went in that direction, but it's still going to be about eight years before it is something that is common for institutional investors to invest in, which is why we target family funds, endowments, and ultra high net worth.
0: Got it. What you're saying is that this structure allows the best of both worlds, right? Because it allows for that more longer term thinking on your end, which is you don't feel like you have to sell before 10 years to everybody. And yeah. some of your investors would like to stay longer as long as you're putting up returns, right. but yeah. you're also giving them options to get out. I guess there's something they structure on, on your end, I guess,
1: for them. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. We say treat us like a normal 10 year fund if you want, or stay longer. That's the simplest way we communicate it. But it's that optionality you're not going to get in many other places. Awesome. And is it like more
0: expensive or is it harder to run? I mean, it feels like every VC fund should do it that way. I mean, I guess, like you said, institutions are not used to it. So that's a big problem. Is that the biggest reason?
1: So for a start for the 10 years, it's not guaranteed liquidity. I want to, I want to be very clear on that. We would have to hold a large pool of capital to service those redemptions. If that was the case, and that would drag down returns. It's almost like a market making, if you will. If there is ever a situation and we haven't had one to date where there are more requests to take out money, then there are actually we reserve half of the capital that's coming in for these redemptions. And if ever there's more requests, then people will get their pro rata out that round. And then the next round, which is 90 days later, they'll be in the top.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So basically it makes it more difficult from a capital allocation internally to make sure that redemptions are viable. Awesome. On that note, could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave?
1: So look, I I used to do a talk for the Founder Institute called Don't Do the Math. And it was really about making that entrepreneurial jump. I think I've been brave every time I've done anything entrepreneurial. But one of the biggest ones for me was I did my, what I call my corporate tour of duty at a big Canadian bank. And I did that shortly after I had my first child. Three years later, I had my second child. I had ruffled a whole bunch of feathers in the bank, got some good learnings, and I left that job to join Kamal, my partner at Loyal, a very ambitious startup that failed shortly thereafter called Sky Meter. My parents had actually asked me, where did we go wrong? Why would you leave such a great job at a bank to run off and do a startup? Essentially, I I said, because the worst that can happen to me is that I'd have to come to my family and have them feed me. That's not a bad, that's not a horrible outcome to me. And I thank you guys for being there for me, for providing that net for me and enabling me to take that jump. And so second kid along the way, wife who wasn't working at the time. These are the types of decisions that that brave entrepreneurs make all over the world. I want to find those ones that can meet our criteria. And I know it's a subset of all of the great entrepreneurs out there. I'm honored to meet them, support them, and vicariously live through their eyes and participate in their journey. Like I said, I got the best job in the world.
0: Amazing. On that note, thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. I'd like to paraphrase the three big themes I got from this conversation. The first, of course, is thank you for sharing something that you said is like diversification is the only free lunch. And I think that's true in investing, but I think this was really interesting in the context of venture capital. I think it shows and what you're doing in terms of talking about the concentration of various VC portfolios, conventional norms. But also contrasting of your approach to obviously like really be rigorous in how you're thinking about how there's diversification in your initial pilot investing with the small checks. But then, of course, using that asymmetric insider information to, like you said, then double down, right? And you talked about it from the context of marketing and the context of getting access to information on in a context of getting in and building a relationship. I thought it was all very fascinating. And I think a very strong mm, anti-thesis or thesis that I think stands as its own pillar, right? Separate from strong individual performing partners who can pick well versus strong thesis driven funds versus lucky funds, right? So I thought it was a really interesting strategic overview. The second, of course, is thank you for kind of talking a little bit about Sortina versus Sharp ratio. And they got a little technical there, but I think it's, a great way to think about what are the industrial returns versus average excess returns versus top this out of returns and i think it was a nice way to talk about from i think lp perspective what they're thinking about is quite different from how for example most retail investors would be thinking about their approach and lastly thank you so much i think for really sharing about i think your loyalty to founders right i think very good app point of view and loyal vc to talking about how you want to promise and deliver about what you want to do. And you're really delivering the capital, but also the speed and decisiveness component to it, which is I think what founders really want as long, as well as all these interesting tweaks that you've done about making merit-based advisory and so, so forth. So I just want to say thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Jeremy. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyour.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.